there are certain common rites of passage that every, I think every child goes through. Learning your ABCs, learning your one, two, threes, learning how to go to the bathroom on the potty, uh, learning to tie your shoes. Maybe the first time you got in trouble in school. I'm sure nobody here this morning ever got in trouble in school, but the first time you get in trouble, uh, maybe you're a bad fall when you were trying to learn how to ride a bike. These are kind of, uh, these are kind of rites of passage for children. Um, one that tends to stick with people for many years is the rite of passage of the playground experience of choosing teams. Anybody remember this? When you were a kid, you would go out for recess or gym class, and you would all line up, and the, the, the uh, gym class teacher or the class teacher would pick two captains and say, all right, now go ahead and pick teams. And you're standing there for a kickball game or, or a baseball game or whatever it is. I read an article recently online by a, a young lady named Katie Baker. She's all grown up now. Uh, but she remembers this very well. I'm going to read to you what she said. She says, I was deemed hopelessly unathletic by a jury of elementary schoolers when I was six years old. Before I ever had a chance to learn how to kick or dribble or catch because I was the tiniest girl in my class. I'll never forget how it felt to be picked last by my peers during PE class day after day, year after year. And she goes on to explain how it still affects her as an adult today, the memory, the impact, uh, how it caused her to never really do anything competitive or athletic because it just stuck with her that she was picked last. Maybe you experienced this. Looking around this room, you guys look like a bunch of first or second picks. But, uh, but, but maybe some of you know what it, knows what it felt like to be picked last for something. And I think we, we wonder, is this just the playground problem that we eventually grow out of this whole choosing people based on how they look. Of course, it's not. Uh, Choosing people based on their appearances or based on their abilities follows us throughout the rest of our lives, doesn't it? Uh, Whether it's choosing your high school friends or your college roommate or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse or the people that you're going to work with, we, we tend to choose people based on how they look and what they can do for us. And I think part of it is because we we live in a society that openly and consistently celebrates strength and success, and power. Uh, The athletes that grace our television screens that we watch and that we talk about, and they're known not for their, so much for their failures, they're known for their successes. They're not known for their weaknesses, they're known for their strengths. We celebrate strength. The celebrities that we watch, we celebrate their skill as actors. We even use terms like, when you go to get a job, do you have a strong resume? Strength. Or, uh, was that a What someone just said, was it a powerful argument, a powerful talk, a a powerful piece of art? And we're a society that elevates and celebrates and even idolizes strength and power and success. And it makes me wonder this question this morning. How does God choose us? If God's picking his team, how does he pick us? Uh, Maybe a broader question is this. How does God look at us? This morning, as you're sitting here, how does God look at you? And today we're in week two of our series from the book of Judges called Broken Heroes. And this morning's message is simply entitled, The Unexpected Deliverer. The Unexpected Deliverer. When Judges chapter 1 and 2 ends and Judges chapter 3 begins, we find Israel living amongst six nations. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
Not just are the Israelites living amongst these idolatrous people, but according to Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, they're intermarrying with them, and they're actually serving their gods. So it's not just coexisting, it's actually they're changing to adapt to the people that they're living with. And so as a result of their disobedience to God, they end up in bondage for eight years. And Israel cries out to God, and God sends a deliverer. And the first judge that we read about in the book of Judges, the first deliverer is exactly the type of person that we would expect. If we were choosing judges from a playground setting, this guy would get picked first. His name was Othniel. And Othniel had great pedigree. He came from a great family. His older brother was a man named Caleb. And if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, it was Joshua and Caleb who really were the leaders of Israel. So this is Caleb's little brother. So he's got the right pedigree. It also says that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. So he had supernatural empowerment and other people could see it. But then we also learned that he was a mighty warrior because he led them into war. He led them into battle. So Othniel is exactly what we expect. And Othniel goes and he, he defeats the enemies that the Israelites are being tormented by, and it results in 40 years of peace. Unfortunately, it doesn't last because last week we talked about the cycle of the book of Judges. The Israelites would find peace, but then they would fall back into sin. They would call out for a deliverer. God would send a judge. They would serve God, and then they would fall back into sin, and it happens 12 times. And it says in verse 12 of Judges chapter 3, this will be on the screen for you, it says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The author emphasizes twice in one sentence they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord in one verse. So God strengthens this king of Moab named Eglon, and this is what Eglon does. He recruits two other people, two other tribes, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and says, let's go fight Israel. They fight Israel, they defeat Israel, they capture what the verses call the city of palms. Now the city of palms is Jericho. Is that name familiar to you at all? Jericho was the first city that was captured by the Israelites under Joshua's leadership through this miraculous intervention on God's part. Remember, this is the story where they marched around the walls of Jericho. And now Israel loses Jericho. The thing that God miraculously gave to them, Israel loses to Moab. They take Jericho, and then the people of Israel end up serving this king, Eglon, for 18 years. And at the end of this 18 years, in verse 15, it says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Ehud. This is what we're going to talk about. We, we don't know a lot about Ehud, but we learn two very important things about him in this text. First, he is a Benjaminite. Now, Benjamin, this tribe, was the youngest and smallest of all the tribes. In fact, later, King Saul would come from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, you know who else who came from the tribe of Benjamin? Mordecai and Esther were from the tribe of Benjamin. And actually, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, I'm from the tribe of of Benjamin. So there's some good people that came from Benjamin, but people didn't expect much from the tribe of Benjamin because they were the smallest tribe. We also learned that he was a left-handed man. Now, in, hysteric, in historical narrative, whenever they include a little detail like that, it means something. Ehud, a left-handed man. Now, how many of you in the room are left-handed, by the way? 
Any, yeah, so just a few of you, not very many, because really the majority are, are right-handed. Now, many of you probably remember this, but my dad was left-handed. In fact, my dad loved to say that left-handed people are the only people in the world who are in their right minds, uh, because apparently there's some sort of exchange of, anyway. But you know, uh, in a world full of all sorts of biases, whether it's based on gender or ethnicity or socioeconomical differences, there actually is a long-standing bias against left-handed people. Uh, we don't experience it quite as much in America right now, but throughout history, uh, left-handed people have been subjected to deliberate uh, discrimination and discouragement. Let me give you some examples. Um, due to cultural and social pressures, many left-handed children were actually encouraged or forced to write with their right hand. And this is not actually that long ago. My wife's grandfather, who was left-handed, remembers as a child being forced to write with his right hand and eat with his right hand and do things with his right hand. And actually, they study it now and say, as a result, it led in many cases to disorders, learning disorders and speech disorders, because you were forcing someone to do something that wasn't natural to them. Some Asian countries encourage or force their children to become right-handed due to a cultural um, perception or that it's bad luck to be left-handed. In fact, in, in, in countries like India and Indonesia, it's considered rude to eat with your left hand. I, when it comes to eating, by the way, I'm ambidextrous. I can just, <laughs> I, I, can go, I go both hands. I'm right-handed with everything else. In some countries and cultures, the right hand uh, is used for, for, for eating for handling food and for social interactions, like shaking hands and high fives and stuff like that. And in some countries, uh, the left hand, this is a little gross, but the left hand is reserved specifically for taking care of yourself after you've gone to the bathroom. So the left hand is exclusively used for wiping and cleaning yourself and things like that. And so in those cultures, you, wouldn't, you gotta be careful which hand you shake. You don't wanna ever shake the left hand because the right hand is the hand that's preferred. You know, even though there's not a lot of um, explicit left-handed biasness in our country today, there still are lots of common items that are made mostly for right-handed people, right? Uh, one example is a guitar. If you're a left-handed person and you want to play guitar, it's difficult to find a guitar for you. Golf clubs is another example. Uh, baseball gloves, video game controllers. If you notice, video game controllers, the, the stuff you're doing is always with your right hand. Uh, spiral notebooks. I never thought about this, but if you're left-handed and you use a spiral notebook, you have to press your hand against the spiral the entire time. Um, and, uh, and scissors and things like that. In fact, we're going to see in the story in just a moment that Ehud, this left-handed man, it says that he made his own sword. Now, why did he make his own sword? Well, maybe he, was, maybe he just liked to. Maybe it was his hobby. Or maybe all the swords were for right-handed people. And he makes this 18-inch double-sided dagger for himself. Now, did this whole thing about right hand versus left hand, did it actually mean anything to the Israelites back then? I think it did, and one of the clues is actually in Exodus 15, verse 6. I'm not going to have you turn there, but um, they're singing a song about how God has delivered them from uh, Egypt. And listen to what he says. It says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And even in the New Testament, we talk about the place of honor. Jesus talks about the place of honor being on the right side. And Jesus today is seated at the right-hand side. So this right-handed thing meant something back then too. So here's what I'm trying to say. Ehud was an unexpected deliverer for two clear reasons. One, the tribe he came from and the fact that he was left-handed. In other words, the, when the author of Judges says he was a Benjaminite and he was left-handed, 
this designation of his tribe and this designation of, designation of his handedness, they are not ringing endorsements of strength and power. He's saying he's unlikely. It actually, it's actually more unlikely than it's even obvious. Because the tribe of Benjaminite was known, the name Benjaminite, you know what they were known for? You know what it meant? The right-handed people. They were known for being the right-handed people. And so the author of Judges is basically saying he's a left-handed man in a right-handed world. He's an outsider. He should, he should not be the deliverer. He should be overlooked. He's weird. He's awkward. He's strange. Clearly he's not the one God's going to choose because he's a left-handed man. It's unlikely. He would have been the last picked at recess. In fact, Israel didn't choose Ehud to deliver them. Israel sends Ehud as an errand boy to pay their taxes to the king. That's all he goes to do. And so Ehud heads off to Moab with the tribute, the taxes, and it says in verse 16 that he made himself a sword, and he binds the sword on his right thigh. We'll talk more in a little bit about why that matters. He presents the tribute to Eglon, and the only thing we really know about Eglon from this text, and it's kind of, uh, you know, if I'm Eglon, I'm not thrilled about this description. It says here in verse um, 17, now Eglon was a very fat man. I mean, that's, that's, all, that's all it says. Eglon was a very fat man. He's like, I reigned for many years, and that's all people talk about. Ehud gives him the taxes, and then they start to head back. And then as they start to head back, let's pick up the story in verse 19. He sends everybody else back, and it says in verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was a very significant place where God had made a covenant with his people. So we don't really know why he turned back there, but we could maybe guess. He's walking by the city that's known for a covenant relationship with God, and he sees idols. And I wonder if something rose up in Ehud, and he's like, uh-uh, it's not going to happen anymore. He turns back, and he says to the king, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, now this is the king saying, he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. So all he asked was for, was for silence. But for whatever reason, everyone leaves him alone with Ehud. Verse 20, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. That was the coolest place of the house in that culture is to get up where you could get the breeze. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king arises from his seats. Now, the drama's building, right? This is a good story. I mean, this is a well-told story. We come now to the climactic moment of the story. And there's actually a wordplay here in the Hebrew where he says, I have a secret or hidden message for you. And the word message could be translated message or a thing. And so he's saying, I have a secret message for you. But he's also saying, I have, some, I have a hidden thing for you. And the reader knows what's hidden is the dagger. But the king thinks it's the message. And so he approaches the king, and the king stands up. First time he says, I have a secret message for you. Second time he says, I have a message from God for you. The king stands up to receive the message. Now, before we keep going, we have to make sense of something in this story. How does Ehud end up alone with this king? I mean, he's the enemy. Why would his bodyguards, who are sworn to defend this king at any cost. Now, the king is dwelling in Jericho at this time, not Moab, where it's his home territory. He's actually in the land he's just conquered. And so why does Ehud end up alone with this king? And we could say, well, it's the sovereignty of God. And of course, the sovereignty of God is always at work in every situation. We could say he earned the king's trust because he just paid him off. And that's possible. But still, it doesn't really make sense as to why they would leave him alone with their king. 
I think the only way that we can make sense of this is to go back to the idea that he's left-handed. Now, there's actually a, a, a bit of debate as to what it means when it says he's left-handed. Some scholars say, because the actual Hebrew says, it doesn't, the Hebrew doesn't say that he was left-handed. The Hebrew says that his right hand was shut off, that it didn't work, that it was shut off is the most literal translation, or shut up. His right hand was shut up or shut off. And so some people say that there were people back then who would actually, in, a, in a, an attempt to become a better warrior, they would bind up their right hand to strengthen their left hand to make them ambidextrous and more. And that is something that happens sometimes. And some people say, that's what happened here. I don't think that's what's happening here, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. Other scholars say this. When it says that Ehud's right hand was shut up, what it actually means is his right hand was crippled. His right hand was deformed. He was handicapped. He couldn't use his right hand. Now, I tend to agree with that interpretation. And the reason why I tend to agree with that interpretation is because I think it's actually the best answer for the question I just raised. How does he end up alone with the king? The reason he ends up alone with the king is because in that culture, they so valued the right-handed warrior that when they saw a man who literally couldn't use his right hand, they would have said, if he can't wield a sword with his right hand, he can't wield a sword at all. He's no threat. He's a handicap. He's a cripple. Throw him in there. What's he going to do to our powerful, obese king? He's never, he's never, he's, he's never going to be able to seriously injure him or hurt him. And that's actually, they may have checked him for a sword, but they would have checked him for a sword on his left thigh because that's where everybody kept their sword because you would reach cross-body to pull your sword. But he put his sword on his right thigh because he was left-handed. But I don't believe he was left-handed by choice. I believe he was left-handed by, by birth, by circumstance. The other reason why I think this is the best explanation for what it means for him to be left-handed is because, let's just stop for a second and ask this question. What is this whole story really about? What is this whole story really about? And here's what I think it's really about. It's really about God choosing and strengthening the weak and the unexpected to accomplish his purposes. And he actually does it not just in Ehud, but he does it in Eglon. As you read the story, you realize Eglon is this really overweight guy. He's not really a very good leader. He's kind of dull. He's kind of dim-witted. He exposes himself to being murdered. He's not a very impressive leader. But it's said in the verses that we read earlier that the Lord strengthened Eglon against the Israelites. So we have this example of the Lord strengthening and raising up this unexpected king. The other reason why it's unexpected, by the way, is that the Moabites were not one of the six people that I read to you earlier. They weren't even really Israel's enemies. They actually were kind of distant relatives. So the fact that it was even the Moabites was unexpected. But then the fact that it was Eglon was unexpected. So here's God raising up a king that the Israelites never would have looked at the Moabites, and they never would have looked at that king, and they never would have seen a threat. And God strengthens and raises up the unexpected to accomplish his purposes. But then also there's Ehud, who's this crippled man from the smallest tribe of Israel. So I think the story is about God raising up people that we overlook. And if that's true, then I, I, I think Ehud had a crippled right hand. I do. Um, you, can't, you can't say for certain, but I think that's what happened here. You have this thread in this story about God choosing and using the unexpected. Okay, so Ehud reaches with his left hand, takes the sword from his right thigh, and thrusts it into the belly of King Eglon. And I'm just going to let this verse 22 speak for itself. It says, And the hilts also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. 
So, you know, this is PG-13 maybe now. <laughs> Ehud, Ehud, with such strength in his left hand, thrusts the sword into the king's belly. It just disappears into this king's belly because he's got such a big belly. And when it says the dung came out, um, it's not out of the wound. Most likely what happened was in shock or in the process of dying, his bowels relaxed. So when, when the story is done, Eglon is lying on the ground dead with a sword in his belly and he's ruined his pants. So it, it's, this, whole, this whole story is a bit of a satire against Moab. The author is making fun a little bit. Now, it doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means the author is having a laugh and pointing out this very embarrassing thing. It's embarrassing enough to be killed by a left-handed crippled man. But then for this to happen on top of it, for, you know, so this is what happens. And, then for, and Ehud locks the doors so that they can't get in, the guards who have left. He locks the doors and he escapes another way. And let's finish this, this part of the story. Verse 24, it says, When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. They're saying he's going to the bathroom. Now listen, part of the reason they think he's going to the bathroom is because they can smell. Verse 23, And they waited until they were embarrassed. Um, and when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and they opened them, and there their Lord was dead on the floor. While all this is happening, Ehud escapes, and he passes beyond the idols and escapes to a place called Sarah. This is a kind of an exciting and graphic story. This is the sort of story, this is why people like the Old Testament, because it's kind of like, yeah, this is like Jason Bourne meets Mission Impossible stuff, you know? He's, on this, he's doing this thing, he's escaping out of a secret place, and he locks the door, and, and it's almost like, you know, these, these sidekicks, these henchmen, can't you see them kind of like running around, bumping into each other, like, what do we do, what do we do? It smells like he's going to the bathroom, it's been a long time, oh no, we don't want to get killed, you know? And finally, they just like, they, they have to go find, in all that, in all that time, Ehud escapes, so there's two truths that this story should remind us of, and I want to just share, with them, share them both with you. And the first truth is this. When we read this story, we should be reminded of this, that the way God looks at you and me is different. It's different than the way everyone else looks at you. The way God looks at you is different than you think he looks at you. Now, we have about 220 people who come to this church on a regular basis, adults, children, teenagers, about 220 of you. If we were to line all 220 people up and ask them the same question, do you believe in God? Most of them, I think, would say, yes, I believe in God. But if we were able to see into their hearts and into their minds, we would learn very quickly, they don't all believe in the exact same God. They don't. They may call him the same thing. They may worship him in a similar way. But it's just impossible because all of us are, have our own interpretation, understanding of who God is. Even if they're very similar, they're going to be very different. And one of the clearest ways to know what someone actually thinks about God is to simply ask them this question, how does God view you? How does God look at you? You know, if, if, I've done this before with a room full of young people. Close your eyes. I'm not asking you to do this this morning, but close your eyes. God is, God, picture God looking at you right now. What's the look on his face? And often it's words like disappointment anger, frustration. What do we think of when we think of how God looks at us? You know, there's two types of people who do not understand um, what God has done for them. There's two types of people who don't understand the results of the good news of the gospel, and they also don't understand 
the ways of the kingdom. Now, the irony about these two types of people is that they appear to have nothing in common with each other. They don't look the same. They don't live the same. They don't act the same. In fact, they don't like each other, but they're the exact same. They share the exact same problem. They don't understand the gospel, and they don't understand the kingdom. And, it's, and, and here they are. When people think of God looking at them, it's these two types of people. Those who think they have disqualified themselves and those who think they have qualified themselves. They're very different types of people. This person thinks that they have disqualified themselves from God's love. This person thinks they've qualified themselves for God's love. And they both don't understand how God looks at them. The disqualified person, let me talk about that first, they think things like this, God can't love me, accept me, or use me because of my past, my weaknesses, my lack of education, my lack of confidence, my insecurities, my inabilities. But when you read scripture, this is what you notice, God always chooses those people. He always chooses and uses the overlooked and the marginalized in society. He, the marginalized, the, the overlooked, the nobodies, they're not God's plan B. They're his plan A. That's who he chooses. He chooses people who do not deserve to be chosen. He chooses people who have not qualified themselves because he delights in redeeming and rescuing and repurposing our lives. He's a restorer of the brokenness. And so God chooses people who are not qualified. He does not choose the qualified. He qualifies those who he chooses. And we see this in the New Testament. The apostle Paul is struggling with this weakness that he has. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. We don't know for sure what it is, if it's a physical weakness or it's a spiritual weakness or it's a combination of the two. And he senses that this enemy has come to torment him with this. And he asks God, would you take it away from me? And three times he says, take this away from me. And finally, God says to him in verse nine, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is not made perfect when it's combined with your power. God's power is not searching for your strength and for your ability and for how impressive you are. You know what God's strength is searching for? Your weakness. Your weakness. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, because of that, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's so counterintuitive to our society which says hide your weaknesses and boast about your strengths. Paul says, I'm boasting about my weaknesses because it gives God the opportunity to, to, to do what he does. In verse 10, he says, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, content with insults, content with hardships, content with persecutions, content with calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This world doesn't understand that. This, that doesn't make an ounce of sense in our world today. When I am weak, then I am strong. You haven't disqualified yourself this morning. You know why? Because no one is beyond the reach of God. And there is nothing that can't be redeemed by God's work. Let me give you some examples. I'm going to read you some names from the Bible. And if you don't know these names, all I want to say is that these are all people that God used. Abraham lied about his wife being his wife. Husbands, that's a bad thing to do. He lied about his wife being his wife. Sarah laughed at God's promises. Isaac was a bad dad. Actually, they all were bad dads. Jacob was a liar. Moses stuttered. Aaron made a golden calf. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon was hiding. Samson lost his strength. David took advantage of Bathsheba. Solomon chased after thousands of women. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. So was Elijah. 
Josiah was too young. Jonah was a bigot who ran from God. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Naomi and Esther were widows. The disciples never understood what Jesus was ever talking about. Thomas doubted. Martha was a worrier. James and John were overly ambitious. Peter was afraid of death. Lazarus was dead. John Mark failed Paul. Timothy had ulcers. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. So was David. And Ehud, he was a left-handed man in a right-handed world. But if you think you've disqualified yourself, you don't understand the story of Scripture. You don't understand how God works. You don't understand his plans. You don't don't understand his purposes. See, when we forget the way that God looks at us, here's what we say to ourselves. My weaknesses are my limitations. And we don't hear God saying this to you. No, your weaknesses are my opportunity. You're preaching to yourself something all day long. What are you preaching to yourself? My weaknesses are my limitations. Or are you hearing God's voice saying, no, your weaknesses are my opportunity and you've never gone too far, and you've never done too much, and you've never slid so far that he can't reach you and use you for his purposes. It's not, not, of course, just our weaknesses that we think disqualify us sometimes, though, is it? Sometimes it's just the stuff we're going through, right? It's the hard times of life. It's, it's, It's the struggle. It's the stuff that we wish that we could go back and, you know, we wish sometimes that life was a choose your own adventure book. And then when you don't get the ending you want, you just go back to page 22 and choose the other one. But life doesn't work that way. We can't do those things. I can't, you know, honestly, one of the reasons why I think Ehud was crippled in his right hand, one of the reasons why I love this story so much, and one of the reasons why I kind of hope this is the true interpretation of the story is because our youngest daughter is crippled in her right hand. She, she was born three months early. She had a grade four brain hemorrhage before she was born, and she has cerebral palsy. And she cannot use her right hand very well at all. And I just, when I, when I, was, when I was studying this, this text, I never knew before this week that people thought Ehud was crippled in his right hand. And I was so excited to tell Aaron and so excited to tell my mom because I just think like, this is, you know, you would, you would go back and say, well, if we could go back, would we have a perfect, whatever that means, a perfectly healthy baby girl? And the easy answer is yes. But the truth is, is that the journey that we're on, the ways in which it's changed us, and shaped us. The people that still see her and marvel at the miracle that she is. The people in our different communities that we never would have known about. The people who have children with similar challenges or the therapists that we've worked with or the preschools that she's going to. that she will, Those are all people that we never would have shared life with if this wasn't our path. And so the idea that the things in our lives that have positioned us where we are somehow are responsible for us not being qualified to do God's purposes and plans is a total misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. He's not out of control. He's never been out of control. And literally nothing in your life will be wasted because God can use it all. If you're in a tough time this morning, and I recognize even as a church body, we're in a difficult season, but we serve a God who delights to show up and show off in those times. He finds great joy, and he finds great, most importantly, he finds great glory, which he will not share with others. He finds great glory in showing up and showing off when all the odds are stacked against us. And everybody else outside of this, these walls might say, well, if you lost your pastor, you're going to lose your church, and people are going to start leaving, and people are going to start fighting, and people are going to get, start getting distracted, but they don't know the God that we serve. They don't know the God that we serve who says, I'm, I'm stronger than that. I'm, I'm better than that. I'm more able than that to raise up a people. And the next person he raises up or the leaders he raises up in this church or the people that are asked to do things, you might feel like you're a left-handed person in a right-handed world, but God has a task for you to do. 
and so you're not disqualified. The other type of person who misunderstands the way God looks at them is the person who feels like, I've qualified myself. Now, these are people who are overconfident in themselves, overconfident in their own abilities, overconfident in their own righteousness, in their own goodness, in their own morality, in their own spirituality. I give this sort of money, and I pray this much, and I do these sort of things, and I'm a good person. And we have this sort of overconfidence. We feel like somehow we've qualified ourselves. I mean, we know that God is a God of grace and not a God of works, but we still think our works have somehow earned something from God. Confessionally, we say we couldn't earn God's love, but functionally, we're a slave to earning his love. And we all struggle with this, I think, at times. So if you're disqualified, you think my weaknesses are my limitations. But if, you're, if you think you've qualified yourself, this is what you say to yourself, my strengths are my opportunities. But God is saying to you, your strengths are actually my limitations. The more you rely upon your own strength, the more you limit what I can do. What are the things we tend to trust in for qualifying ourselves? Sometimes it's our connections, it's our family, it's our heritage, it's our ethnicity, it can be our political party that we align ourselves with, it can be even the church that you go to, it can be your friends, it can be the, 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 the well-being of your family, all these things that we look for and we find power in them. It could be material possessions, it could be money, it could be your status at work, it could be the, it could be the title before or after your name. These are all things. And listen, what I'm saying to you this morning is this, if your life is marked by power and influence and success and comfort, it's not a bad thing, but you just got to be careful. You got to be careful. In other words, if life's not a struggle for you, if you're making your way through life pretty well on your own, it feels like, you got to be careful because there's a tendency for your heart to begin to rest in those things and to begin to rejoice in those things and for you to begin to actually find your identity in those things and to think that that qualifies you, your bank account or the way people look at you or your future career, it qualifies you somehow, makes you impressive to God. Paul talks about this too in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Let me read these verses to you. Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's saying, you're not Othniel, you're Ehud. You're not Othniel, you're Ehud. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30. And because of him, because of who? Because of you? No, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. See, he's, he's juxtaposing the foolishness of this world with the wisdom of God. He's saying the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Nobody who's using this world's common sense looks at the cross and says, that's impressive. What a feat of strength. That's not a feat of strength. It was a terrible defeat. It was a terrible loss. It was a death of criminals reserved for only the worst criminals. But Jesus became to us by going through the foolishness of the cross. He becomes the wisdom from God. Righteousness. He's our righteousness. You heard that this morning in at least two of the words that came out this morning. You heard that, right? That we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. It's his righteousness, not ours. Sanctification, redemption. Verse 31. So that as it is written, Paul's quoting the Old Testament here, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, if you take these two verses that we've read from Corinthians this morning, here is the cycle of the Christian life. Boast in your weaknesses, boast in Christ. Boast in your weaknesses, boast in Christ. Boast in your weaknesses, boast in Christ. Maybe it's less of a cycle and more of a tennis match. Back and forth, back and forth. But you know when it breaks down? Boast in my strengths. Well, why boast in Christ then? You're too busy boasting in your strength. 
boast in our weaknesses and we boast in Christ. We don't delight. We don't delight in our struggles. We don't, we don't make them our identity, but we also don't carry them with shame either because we know it's an opportunity for God to do something. And by the way, if you want to read something this week, one of the clearest examples of two brothers, one who thought he had disqualified himself and one who thought he had qualified himself is found in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus tells the story of the lost sons. One is sure he's disqualified himself. He messed up bad, and he comes back to his father, not even asking to be a son again, simply saying, would you hire me on? He doesn't come back saying, well, can I be your son again? He comes back and says, will you, will you hire me? Hired man didn't live in the house. The hired man lived in town and earned money for the house. But the other one was sure he qualified himself. And when the younger brother is restored, the other one is so angry, and he says, look, Dad, I never broke any of your rules. What's he saying? I qualified myself. He's boasting in his own strength. And so maybe read that story this week sometime, but here's what the story means. Neither son understood the way the father looked at him. Neither son understood. And when the first son experienced the love and grace of his father, his heart was changed. And we don't know what happens with the older son because the story just ends. So first point this morning is simply the way that God looks at you is different than you think. But lastly, this morning, the way you look at God is the difference. The way you look at God is the difference. What's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? What's the difference between a child of God and someone who's outside the family? It's simply this. It's the way you look at God. It's the way you look at God. Now, let's read, the, you know, we didn't finish the story, actually, of Ehud. So let's read the rest of the story. He runs off. He blows a trumpet. The people of Israel hear the trumpet. They come down. In verse 28, Ehud says to the people, he says, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they've heard what he did. They've heard that Eglon is dead. And so now they have all this confidence and boldness. He says, follow after me. So they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan. Remember, they had to cross the Jordan back in Joshua just to get to Jericho. So they seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites. They did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. Now, we don't know if this is literally 10,000 because it can also be translated 10 clans. But whatever it is, they killed enough people to defeat the Moabites. And it describes the Moabites this way. They were all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. Verse 30, the story ends this way. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Double the rest they got from Othniel. Othniel, the mighty warrior, the brother of Caleb, the anointed one, brought 40 years of rest to the people of Israel. Ehud, the left-handed crippled nobody from the tribe of Benjamin. God used him to bring 80 years of peace to the people of Israel. Now, how do we look at God? Let's look first at how Israel looked at Ehud. They see Ehud differently than they've ever seen him before. Up until this moment, they saw him as someone who was maybe couldn't do things as well as they could, someone who wasn't impressive, someone who wasn't strong. But when they come back and they hear, Ehud did What? He did what? By himself? With his left hand? He killed this king that's tormented us for 18 years? And then Ehud stands up and it's like now they see him differently. And they follow him. You know what's interesting about Ehud? Of the 12 judges, he's the only one that all of Israel follow. Every other judge 
has a couple tribes that follow him or her. But it says in the text that all of Israel followed Ehud. So when Israel sees Ehud's work on their behalf, that he alone defeated their tormentor, then they follow him into battle. They follow this unexpected deliverer. But you know, as Christians this morning, we also have an unexpected deliverer that we are called to follow. Now Ehud walked in alone to the presence of this great enemy and he thrust his sword into the stomach of this king to win for the Israelites. But Jesus, who's the greater Ehud, who came to deliver us, he also was alone. Not thrusting swords into other people's bellies, but allowing nails to be thrust into his hands and his feet and crown of thorns thrust upon his head and a spear thrust into his side. Why? So he could win for us in a very unexpected way. An unexpected deliverer an unexpected scene, the cross. And when, G- when Christians look at Jesus and see his victorious work on their behalf, when you look at Jesus and you see him defeating the ultimate enemies of Satan and death and hell, you know what it does? You can follow him into battle now, just like the Israelites followed Ehud. You can follow him into battle because he did it in an unexpected way. And what happens is we see Jesus dying for us living for us, dying for us, rising from the grave for us, you know what it does? It fills your heart with hope and courage. And now all the battles that you're not sure you got the strength for, you have. Because you're not following yourself, you're not relying upon your strength, but you're following Jesus into battle. Everyone in this world is looking to someone or something to find strength and courage and hope. But looking at God for that is the difference. That's the difference. It makes the difference between those who trust in God and those who don't. Before we pray, Let me add this little uh, appendix to the message. It should also change the way you look at other people. You should begin to see people through God's eyes. Not evaluating, judging, assessing people based on what they can do to advance you, based on what they can do, based on what they look, how they dress, where they live. There are people in this community who are desperate for a friend. And if you friended them, they would want to know more about who you are and the God that you serve. And within weeks or months, they'd probably be in here with you on a Sunday morning. Because there's people in this community and where you live who, but we overlook them. They're not impressive. They're not interesting. They're maybe even embarrassing in some ways. And if we see that God looked at us and chose us, how can we not, with the same eyes, look at others and have a heart for them that they would know God, this God, this unexpected deliverer that we serve? Let's bow our heads together and pray.